Our reading this morning, we are finishing the first chapter of Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, City Church. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, thankful that we might gather under your good care and word this morning. Pray that you would, Holy Spirit, help make the words of life that are on a page come to life in our heart. Spirit, we need your help and understanding. Pray that you would help my feeble mouth and my inadequacy uh, speak words of truth and life this morning, and that we might leave this morning from this gathering encouraged, empowered to speak truth of life to a dying world. And we love you. Thank you for this time. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Well, there's several uh, different organizations that keep track of uh, the levels of persecution around the world. And one of them that I looked at this year is called Open Doors USA. So it's a, it's a nonprofit. It brings attention to Christian persecution around the world. Uh, Afghanistan North Korea and Somalia are listed one, two, and three as the most dangerous countries in the world for Christians. So listen to a few stories. This one from Somalia. This is a Christian named Fatuma who says this, the first time in court, they made us sign our death certificates. They told us, you have to deny Jesus right now. And we said, no, we will not deny the Lord, but we will rather sign for our death. She was arrested along with her husband and never heard from again. There are an estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians in North Korea who are in prison right now. Often a whole family will share the same fate as one of its members captured, and that is torture and death. The North Korean government views Christians as the most dangerous political class of people. The persecution is violent and intense. Bay, a Christian living in North Korea, says this, from the other perspective of other people, our life of suffering must seem like a cursed life. However, this suffering is a blessing from our Father, who allowed it into our life because it is a shortcut to the Father. And hear the words of an Afghan Christian on, believing, on being a believer in Afghanistan. He says, if you leave Islam, your punishment is death. The Taliban routinely do house searches at night. Now he's a refugee, he's made it to America, and he wants Americans to hear this. The love of Jesus is working in Afghanistan. Now, the, our passage this week that Kate just read uh, reminds us that the church across all ages has never been immune from persecution and suffering. And so a life worthy of the gospel of Christ will be a life of suffering for the sake of Christ. 
So just to catch you up on where we've been, this is the third week uh, of our Philippians study. I'm so glad that you are here. If you are new, as Chris said at the top, uh, welcome. Uh, we're thankful to be opening the Word of God with you uh, this morning. And we started uh, the book off looking at meaningful friendship. We've actually wanted to look at the entire book of Philippians through this lens of meaning because we all ask this question. In fact, I, I would argue that we ask this question, or we should ask this question, every single Sunday that we gather. What is the meaning of life? What makes for a meaningful life? Now, what we've argued from the very beginning in the book of Philippians is that what makes for a meaningful life is the gospel. The gospel brings us ultimate meaningfulness, the first week, we looked at meaningful friendship. We saw that Paul has tremendous friends here in the Philippians who are partnering with him for the spread of the gospel. Last week, we looked at Paul's meaningful calling, uh, the calling that God had put on his life. The gospel was flourishing even while Paul was in prison, and he wanted his friends to know that no matter what is happening in life or death, that his aim is to honor Christ and to serve them. So we've looked at friendship, we've looked at calling, and today we're going to look at meaningful suffering. Meaningful suffering. So Paul has rejoiced over his friends, he's told them the gospel is advancing, and now he's telling them, and you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer like I have for the sake of Christ. If you are taking notes this morning, um, Here's the main idea. It's one sentence, but it has four parts, so we're going to walk through all four parts, but here it is. Meaningful suffering is a worthy gift from a worthy God for a worthy people engaged in a worthy war. It's a worthy gift from a worthy God for a worthy people engaged in a worthy war. Now let's take a look at these uh, each one at a time. Meaningful Suffering is a worthy gift. A gift. What does that even mean? Well, if you see here in verse 29, it says that it has been granted to you. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That literally means gifted. It's been gifted to you, or you've been counted worthy to receive this gift of suffering. Suffering for the sake of Christ is a gift. Now, amazingly, we receive suffering in the same manner as we receive faith and belief in God. You see that? That you're receiving not only the suffering, but you're also, just as you did receive that suffering, receiving faith. And we're pretty good with uh, receiving faith. Uh, the concept of receiving faith, uh, we gladly accept that this is a gift from God, uh, that we have new hearts now that are able to worship Him. But how many of us say, thank you for the suffering that you have given me. In many ways, we, uh, we know this is true about our lives, but we, we don't really lead out in this very often. So when we gather on a Sunday, when, when you hear, like we did at the beginning, some of the announcements and the invitations into life of the body at the City Church, we're, we're telling you about the good stuff. Uh, we're not telling you about the suffering that is also taking place, but this is also what we've been invited into. We've been invited into suffering for Christ. What I'd like to do here for the next few minutes is really kind of just read several different passages of Scripture over us. This is going to give us like a high-level view of what the New Testament says about suffering. 
Uh, There's many, many places in the Bible that speak to this type of suffering that's so counterintuitive to us because it's a gift. It's been been there from the start, though. Look look at this or listen to this from Acts chapter 5. This is verses 40 and 41. This is after the apostles have been arrested for teaching and preaching Christ. It says this, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Counted worthy. Paul's friend Peter, the apostle Peter, he has much to say about Christians suffering in his letter to the Christians all throughout Asia Minor. Here's what 1 Peter 2, verses 19 through 21 say. For it is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Suffering is a gracious thing. 1 Peter 3 says this, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Suffering is a blessed thing, is what we hear. And then finally from 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Suffering for Christ's sake is a joyous thing. Even Jesus spoke about all of this during his Sermon on the Mount. Here's Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When Jesus said blessed, he's telling his listeners what the good life is in his kingdom. That's one way we can listen or read the Beatitudes and think, this is the good life. What is the good life? The good life includes suffering on account of Jesus. And this is the part where uh, you've come to church and you're very uncomfortable right now. You're probably shifting in your seats a little bit. Uh, uh, I want everything, I want every benefit of union with Christ except suffering. And yet, we're told it's part of the good life. And friends, it is not natural to think about suffering as a gift. It's not natural to think that suffering is part of the good life that we live for Jesus Christ. It's not natural, but it is supernatural. It's supernatural. It is only God that can make sense of our suffering. And so, when we hear stories like I just told you at the beginning of the message from different parts of the world, different countries who are uh, in the midst of severe persecution, then we can ask the question, what does suffering look like in the American church? That's a pretty loaded question, isn't it? 
what does persecution look like for the American church? Now, I, I believe that uh, there are two ditches that we can fall into uh, when we think about persecution in this country. On one side of the road, there's the ditch of seeing persecution of the American church at every single turn. Everything is persecution is where this ditch is. If everything is persecution, then it actually becomes nothing. If everything is persecution, then nothing is persecution. Now, the other ditch on the other side of the road says there's persecution in this country because of our religious freedom and because our, our suffering is nothing like that of the church in North Korea or Afghanistan, and then there's really not really persecution at all. You see the two ditches? One is that everything is persecution and the other ditch is nothing is persecution here because we don't have it as bad as the churches in other parts of the world. Now, it's true that none of us are going to be beheaded today for having a Christian worship service in this room. But it does not mean that there aren't at least some examples, if not many examples, of cultural persecution in this country. We face a persecution that is much more psychological than physical, but it's still there nonetheless. I don't have to tell you that we live in the, the age of outrage. This is, this is where everybody is mad all the time, it seems. We see opponents of Christianity resort to verbal attacks, uh, online smear campaigns, because the world's sense of justice has been violated by Christians and our stands on different moral issues. So in their minds, the means justify the ends. Being civil or kind does not matter. This is where we have developed uh, terms like cancel culture. That's why, that's why that term exists now. Now, I don't think that city church necessarily has a big target on her back like other bigger churches or other prominent leaders in this country. So uh, very likely that uh, city church is not going to be trending on Twitter later on today uh, because of something that I am saying this morning uh, like other bigger entities are. But maybe, maybe you have experienced this type of persecution, even just in a more private way. Maybe even within your own family, or at your place of work, or at your school. Where walking in obedience to God may bring condemnation from others. It might be that you, you don't use filthy language, and so you're teased about it. It might be being passed over for a promotion because of a pro-life Facebook post. It might be losing a friend because of the church you go to. A manner of life worthy of the gospel brings suffering. Now, we, we, should, be, we should be very thoughtful and careful when we compare this type of suffering to the suffering faced in the church in North Korea or China. Uh, I, I don't want to be uh, uncareful about that. Uh, compared to what our brothers and sisters around the world in some pockets of this world are facing, I want to be careful about the way that we talk about our suffering and persecution. But there is some type of persecution going on in our churches here today. And there may indeed be a, a day coming where there's going to be even more cultural and political, maybe even financial consequences to the faithful evangelical church in America. Nobody wants that. Nobody is, is scrambling for that here. 
but we shouldn't be surprised when it happens because Jesus himself told us that it would happen. He told us it would happen and he calls us blessed. He calls us blessed. Paul says suffering for the sake of Christ is a worthy gift. So one of the questions this morning then is, have you received this as a gift in your life? Do you see it as a, as a gift to embrace? So it is a worthy gift from a worthy God. So our suffering is seen as an honor because of the God we serve, who suffered for his people. In chapter 3 of Philippians, when we get there in a few weeks, Paul will actually say that we share in the sufferings of, of Christ. We share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. He is, after all, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the one oppressed and afflicted. Jesus is the narrow gate. He says this in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is also the king of a much different kingdom. In John 18, as Jesus is talking with Pontius Pilate, he tells them, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Now, friends, we will, we will never share in the exact same sufferings as Jesus Christ. We will not share in the sin-atoning sacrifice suffering on the cross that Christ went through. But we will suffer in many ways like he did. As goes the king, so go his people. As goes our King Jesus out ahead of us in suffering, so go us. So go his people. In this letter, Paul, in the very beginning, in verse 1, we saw this a few weeks ago. Paul opens the letter and addresses the Philippians as saints. Calls them saints, which can be translated as holy ones or different ones. But the Philippians, those saints in Philippi, are the different ones. And so a life worthy of the gospel means we live as different ones, where suffering for our king is a gift. Meaningful suffering is a worthy gift from a worthy God for a worthy people. Now, we are only worthy in Christ. The gospel turns unworthy people into worthy saints. So that's the only reason that we can say that. And only worthy saints can then live a life in the manner worthy of the gospel. If you look at this passage this morning, the first word in verse 27 is only. But that, in other translations, has been rendered, here's the one thing. So another way to read this passage is Paul saying, Philippians, here is the one thing. The one thing is live as worthy people. That's the one thing. That's why we've titled our entire series in Philippians, uh, Living in the Manner Worthy of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why life worthy of the gospel, it's the one thing. It's the one thing Paul wants them to know. It's the one thing that we need to know. 
that we are to live as worthy citizens of a different kingdom. In fact, uh, the Greek word there in verse 27 actually conveys this idea of citizenship. How we live worthy of the gospel is how do we live as citizens, to be worthy citizens, to be different ones while here. The Philippians were to be different ones in the city of Philippi, but also know, as Paul will say later on, that their citizenship is in heaven. Living as worthy citizens here while knowing that our true citizenship is above. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Would someone observing your life identify you primarily as a Texan, as an American, or as a citizen of heaven? Does someone come into our services on Sunday? When we have a visitor come into this room on a Sunday morning, are they going to find more similarities with the city of Fort Worth or the city of God? If you haven't met my son, Owen, uh, Owen is an uh, incredible Buffalo Bills fan, okay? Uh, you, know, you might ask the question immediately, are you and your family from Buffalo? And the answer is, no, we are not from Buffalo. Well, then you might ask, have you ever visited Buffalo? Do you have family in Buffalo? And our answer is no. Uh, we've never been to Buffalo, never uh, want to really go to Buffalo, if I'm honest, if I have anything to do with it. I, we don't want to go to Buffalo, but this time of year... Uh, my son Owen, in fact, later today, he will be decked out in Buffalo Bill, Bills garb uh, because he loves the Buffalo Bills. And so when you look at Owen, he is going to look like he's more of a citizen of Buffalo than Fort Worth. He's going to be in Dallas Cowboys country here in the Metroplex, but his heart, his affections are in Buffalo. A gospel first church can be gathering anywhere on the face of the earth, and yet their life, their heart, their very being is found in heaven. Are we living like that? Are we living like that, friends? Meaningful suffering is a worthy gift from a worthy God for a worthy people who are engaged in a worthy war. I want to camp out in this idea for the rest of our time together this morning. We're engaged in a worthy war. I say war because Paul uses a few military phrases in this passage. You first of all see uh, that in verse 30, he says that they are engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So there is a conflict, but he also uses phrases like standing firm and striving side by side. These are military terms. So the, the Philippians would have recognized the context that we're talking about a war. He also says that he does not want them to be frightened of their opponents. That, that word actually frightened uh, was used frequently in Greek literature to describe a stampede of startled horses. So Paul is basically saying, do not charge off like a spooked horse whenever you see your opponents. No, you, you are to stand firm and contend with your opponents. You should stand firm side by side together. And when you do this, it is a clear sign of their destruction. It's a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. You see that in verse 28? 
In fact, the, the same word used here for salvation was the word rendered deliverance back in verse 19. We looked at that last week. So what Paul is saying is that there is in a, an eternal deliverance. There's an eternal deliverance from the citizens of the world to citizens of heaven. And there is an eternal destruction for the opponents. And why is this a sign of these things? He says this is a sign of their sure destruction. Friends, those who are opposed to Christianity have no category for suffering as a gift. Our enemies do not understand when we are standing and saying suffering for Christ is a gift. Embracing suffering is literally foreign to our enemies. But weakness, weakness is strength in God's kingdom. Weakness is strength. This is the essence, basically, of what we just heard Jesus tell Pontius Pilate and John. Weakness is strength. This is a different kingdom. Now, it, it's certainly true that those who remain opponents of God's people, who align themselves with Satan and his strategies, will be destroyed. That is clear, not only in this passage, but throughout the entire scripture, we know that those who are opposed to God will ultimately be destroyed. It's just amazing if we just stop and consider who is writing this letter. Have you thought about who is writing this letter? Paul, several years earlier, would have been one of the opponents that he's writing about right now. He would have been the opponent destined for destruction and the wrath of God. And friends, this is, this is a reminder that the gospel is for all people. But the gospel is good news for all people. The same man who ravaged early Christians, who persecuted and participated in murders of the saints, has had his life turned upside down by the gospel of Jesus Christ and now is the one writing to his friends, his deep friends. This should bring us hope. The gospel transforms the unworthy into worthy. That's good news for us this morning, friends. And what does that mean for us? Well, that means that while we stand firm, while we strive together in this worthy war, we should pray. We should certainly pray. We should pray for believers all around the world that are being afflicted by evil right now. We pray that the enemies of our friends, the enemies of God, would be saved that we'd be on our knees praying that they would be saved from that destruction and saved from destruction into eternal life with Christ. That's the power of the gospel. All of us who belong to Christ used to fight on Satan's side. That, that was the side that we fought on. We were the opponents. We were the persecutors. We were the ones with murderous hearts we were the ones that had every intention of every thought of our heart only evil continually. But the cross of Christ has brought us onto the other side of this cosmic conflict. And so if you're in Christ, you're with Christ. If you're in Christ, you're with Christ. We have new hearts. We have new affections. We have a new identity, and it's only by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. 
And the gift of faith comes with the gift of suffering. Our gift of faith, by grace, in Christ, comes with suffering. Now the question is how? How do we do this? If we're in a fight, if we're in a conflict, if we're in a war, how? How are we to stand firm and contend in the face of suffering? How are we to contend for the sake of Christ in this war? Well, you see there, he, Paul says that we are standing firm in one spirit. That we strive side by side with one mind. And ultimately, we have one fear. Church, we have one spirit, one mind, and one fear. The church has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us now. In each of us who are believers, we are a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. We have one mind. We actually have, the scriptures say we have the mind of Christ. We have one mind and we have one fear. The fear of God. We have one fear, not the fear of man. We don't fear our opponents. We have one fear, and that is of God. Friends, when the, uh, when the church is unified, hell stands no chance. When the church is unified in one mind, in one spirit, with one fear of God, the gates of hell will not prevail. You don't have to imagine that the church in Nigeria this morning who is under the threat of armies literally coming in on motorcycles and slaughtering women and children is confused about who the enemy is. The church in China that's under surveillance by the government does not read this passage in Philippians and wonder, how does this apply to us? We are to be unified as we engage in this conflict with our opponents that we have an enemy. We have an enemy. But I will confess that it seems like the American evangelical church is struggling to know either where to aim their weapon or if they're even going to pick their weapon up. Too often it seems uh, either churches are finding that every hill is a hill to die on or they're not even aware that there's even a hill in the first place. It's interesting to uh, consider exactly when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. If you look at the, the uh, course of church history, uh, this is early in the first, part, uh, first century in Rome. So this letter would have been written just before Emperor Nero. And if you know anything about Nero, he was not a good guy. Uh, he eventually would end up, just a few uh, years later after this letter is written, uh, widespread, tormenting, persecuting, and killing Christians. But at this time, at this exact time, when Paul is writing to the Philippians, there actually would have been very few Roman officials who were bloodthirsty or who would necessarily wanted to kill Christians, but they would have been persecuted because the Romans did not like them. They hated that the Christians in Philippi had a distinct lifestyle. The Romans hated that the Philippians had different views on raising children, on money, and on sex. They didn't understand why Christians couldn't just uh, uh, add the 
worship of the emperor as part of their service. So in many ways, the Romans were like, we're, we're fine with you worshiping God as long as you just also add to that the worship of Caesar. It was in the face of this uh, softer form of persecution that the unity of the church was only strengthened when they had to eventually face the harder persecution of torture and death that was to come. Things may not have been extremely bad at this time, but it was only a few short later, years later where people were literally being burned alive for Christ. The family, whether or not there will be widespread imprisonment or torturing or killing of Christians in America, I, I do believe that there is need more than ever for us to be of one spirit, of one mind, and have one fear. This is the time. Now listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking this morning about uh, the fact that we don't need to have really good, robust, healthy conversation about issues in the church. I'm not saying that we deny that there are second and third order issues in God's church that we don't need to have robust conversations about. But what I am saying is that we should definitely hold fast to the one faith of the gospel. That is of first importance. And we have to do that no matter what our worldly opponents might say or do. This worthy war is against the powers and principalities of the world. And so while we grow more and more in love with knowledge and all discernment, as Paul says earlier in chapter 1, we must be united. This week, Ligonier Ministries and, and Lifeway Research uh, released their report. They call it, every two years, the state of theology in America. And so they released the report this week. I don't know if you had a chance to come across this uh, as you were looking at social media this week. They do this every other year, and I want to read a, a few of the results from this year's survey. So here's, here's one. Here's the, the statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Among U.S. evangelicals, among those who identify as being Christians, 56% say they agree. That's up from 44% two years ago. Here's another. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of U.S. evangelicals agree. 43%. Here's another one. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it is, literally, but it is not literally true. 26 of evangelicals in this country agree, but that's up from 15% in 2020. The foundations of our faith are withering away before our eyes. Now, this is the soft persecution of uh, there are no other ultimate religious truths. This is what our world is telling us. This is the context in this country at this time. Uh, the war that we are fighting, we're fighting against the belief that there are many paths up the mountains beside Christianity to find God. That's what we're up against. So friends, let us contend and persevere together in unity. But we, we do this on our knees in prayer. 
Let us do this on the ground, pleading, pleading for friends and neighbors to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We, we do this by teaching and preaching the true and only gospel. We do it with all love and in all truth. This is why we gather this morning. This is why every Sunday you will sit here and hear the word of God and its truth. This is why, as Chris was saying earlier in our discipleship groups, that we read the word, we pray the word, we encourage one another. This is why we do it. We don't fight. We don't fight with the same weapons that our opponents do. Do you remember that we are the different ones? We are the saints, the ones set apart, the different ones. And so, we keep our conduct honorable. We do not revile in return. We stand firm with gentleness and respect. And we strive in humility as our Savior did on earth. Now, here's the best news. You ready for that? The best news is that this war has already been won. The war is won. And it was won because of the suffering of Christ before us. Jesus, perfectly unified with Father and Spirit, stood firm in obedience to God. He strove side by side with Father and Spirit with a pure heart all the way to the cross. There, on the cross, what appeared to be a defeat and weakness was victory over evil. Paul says it this way in the book of Colossians. He said, On the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and authorities of this world have been put to open shame by the cross. They've been sent to destruction by the cross. I ran, across, I ran across this old hymn this week. It says this, There is a green hill far away without a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. Family, it's the cross where the greatest suffering ever known where our Savior hung and bled and died. That's the place where our suffering now finds its meaning. So, let us receive the worthy gift of suffering for His sake until He comes again. Let's pray. And Father, that is our prayer this morning, that, that You would be with us in our suffering and that we know that the hope of Jesus Christ and your salvation for us that we will not suffer forever. We know that you are coming again. In the meantime, Father, we pray and plead and ask that you will help us as poor and needy and inadequate and tempted on either side to, to stand firm. I pray that you would help us as a church to strive together with one spirit and one mind and a fear of only you 
as we see the opponents around us. I pray that we would keep in mind the one faith, the one true gospel, and that you have given us the very means to suffer well. That you have given us the means to fight this war on your behalf. The war that you won for us. And thank you for the gift of suffering for your sake. I pray that where we are struggling in our hearts to even say that and mean it, that you would, Spirit, reassure us of who we are in you. I pray that we would be unified. I pray that we would, uh, as we even leave this place together and walk back into a hostile world, a hostile workplace, school, family, that you would remind us of these truths, that we would take comfort in these truths. And that we might live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.